Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30, and, of course, it's time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to welcome back into the studio Gwen and Roger Elliott. Good morning. Good morning, Pam. Morning, everyone. And the same from me. And you two have been so busy with Cranbourne, all sorts of amazing events going on over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, look, it's been a pretty... It's been a fascinating time, Pam. So what we've been doing is looking at the kangaroo paw family. So that's uh, a pretty important family, only small. It's called the Hemoderaceae, which means a gift of blood. So because they have blood roots, and uh, so yeah, we've had uh, kangaroo paw weekend where public came around, big plant sales of all different sorts of kangaroo paws and conostylus and things like that. Then we had a a three day symposium. Well, could probably tack another night onto it because there was a, a talk by Stephen Hopper who's the guru of that plant family came across from Western Australia and uh, yeah no it's all all been good. Excellent mm. and um, they've planted out I know hundreds and hundreds of kangaroo paws down in the Australian garden. Mm, probably thousands. <laughs> really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they've been planted in all different sorts of situations in garden beds in planters of different sizes, just showing people how they can use them and, uh, you know, even combining them with other plants too. So, And it's still looking good down there. You know, if people uh, want to go down, today might be a bit hot and windy perhaps, but uh, on a cooler day, yeah, mm. it's looking good. Excellent. Mm. Okay. And Angus Stewart's been brooding a whole, a new series which is called Landscape. Um, landscape pink, landscape orange, landscape yellow. There's about six or seven, maybe eight in the series. Uh, and he's particularly bred these to have... There's just one species, Anagazanthus flavidus, which is very hardy and reliable and, you know, will last for years and years and years and years with minimum attention. And Need some, of some the, attention. Minimum. Oh. Minimum is some. More, more than minimum, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't, don't kill it with kindness. Um but, you know, there are some species of kangaroo paws, the miniature ones, which are more challenging in cultivation and are not always long lived in the wild. Mm. And people have been tempted by the fantastic colours of those and lost them and sort of said, oh, I can't grow kangaroo paws. Right. Um, but this landscape series concentrates on the tall kangaroo paws, some of the flower stems can be as tall as humans, you know, a couple of metres tall almost. Uh, and there's a big range of colours now in those because of the hybridising that's been done. And so a new one, was Landscape Violet, was released a fortnight ago down at Cranbourne. But, you know, with the smaller ones, if you see them in a nursery and you think, wow, that looks fantastic, compare it in your mind a little bit to buying a bunch of flowers. It'll last much longer than a bunch of flowers. It won't cost much more. Um, but it won't live longer than you do sort of thing, yep. whereas some of the others will. So, okay. Hmm. Excellent. <laughs> right. Um, and I presume you, you've had the full gamut of all the different colours planted mm. out. and mm. yeah. yeah, there yes. are. There are. Wow. So, and, you know, the family itself is quite an interesting family. It, it, there's, they're finding there's lots of, uh, well, quite high potential for uh, medicinal Purposes coming out of it. Probably research has been going on for quite a while, but there's lots of promising things, especially from the group called the Hemodorums, which most Hemodorums don't have very spectacular flowers. 
and um, they're, West, they're mainly Western Australia, Northern Australia they get into. But, uh, you know, they've been used, Aboriginal people have been using them for a long time for uh, dyeing and, and also for food. Dye making of things, not for killing them. No, <laughs> D-Y-E. Right, I'm glad D-Y-E. you did. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that you know that that's fascinating. Just that that group of plants, yes. and um, especially Northern Territory, they use one plant called Hemodorum coccinium, which has brilliant red flowers. Or they can also go through to the yellows, and they use that for dyeing things like pandanus leaves. And then you'll see lots of their baskets up in the Northern Territory have deep red or even burgundy colorations to mm. the to baskets, and that's from the Hemodorum. Okay. Which, so, yeah. No, look at. Um, and there's a lot of unnamed species. They found one hemodorm. Steve Hopper found about three weeks ago, about two kilometres from where he lives. And, Good uh, heavens. Um, so there, there's about, I think, 20-odd species in this family, mainly Australian, some overseas, um, which are yet to be named. Okay. And so it's, uh, you know, it, was, it was a great time. Excellent. Yeah. Wonderful. And and fantastic for for highlighting the gardens at Cranbourne. Oh, yeah, um. yeah, for that too. And uh, we did have one of the – we had the Science Day in at Melbourne Gardens. So yes. that, was, uh, that was good, being in Mueller Hall, which has got lots of, you know, connotations as far as old Mueller and all that sort of thing. So it was, it was good, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Now you two have to sort of try and relax and recover from That's it all. Right. <laughs> and I bet you're already planning activities for next year too for Friends oh, of Oh, no. Would, would you believe one of the speakers, Kingsley Dixon, who's one of the world's foremost experts on the, the reasons why smoke germinate things, you know, he came up later and said, okay, you're so good at organising these things. How about doing something on the... Erica family, which includes, uh, you know, and then I got another email from him saying, Look, maybe, maybe not that. How about just all the, the the Australian bulbs, bulb group? You know, we don't have any bulbs, but all the orchids and right. anything that's a geophyte that uh, has its main organ in the ground, you know. But anyway, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we have to say a very good morning as well to Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. Good morning, Jeremy. <laughs> good morning, Pam, and good morning, everyone. Oh yeah, that was, that was fascinating. Uh, yeah, Kingsley Dixon. I, I was uh, he. I, I met him back in the eighties, and he. I was sort of hunting down um, kangaroo grass in Western Australia, which was really difficult. It's one of the few parts of Australia where it's where it's unusual, or if not extremely rare. I managed to find a bit eventually, but. Um, but he, uh, but Kingsley actually let me have a look at some of the dried specimens, which were collected mainly in the Kimberleys. Mm. I remember he was very cagey about where exactly they were collected in the Kimberleys. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but that was quite a memorable day. Um, yeah, so, well, this spring is, well, summer, early summer. Is, uh, it's still spring, really, isn't it? It, it is, feels yeah. like spring, definitely. The weather tells us it's spring. Yeah, yeah. the, the uh, winter hung on and uh, the first half of spring in the Dandongs was a bit boring. Uh, in fact, the, I've never seen the rhododendrons with so few flowers in the, uh, during September. Okay. And uh, I think it went back to that burst of heat we had this time last year. And uh, most of the plants aborted their buds. And, right. Um, so all our big arboreums have very few flowers, but they've put on tremendous growth as a 
uh, to make up. But the second half of spring has just been incredible. Mm. And we still have rhododendrons flowering from one end of the, end of the dandongs to the other right now. Goodness. I, I have never seen them flowering in, in December before. Okay. And uh, at the same time, all the summer flowers are coming on as well. Yes. So we've got... Um, well, roses flowering uh, along with rhododendrons. Yes, wonderful. Um, the dogwoods have just been incredible. Um, we've got a uh, one called Kusa Constellation, so it's a selection of the Chinese dogwood, which is just coming into flower now. And I have never seen a dogwood showing so much bud as uh, this one has. Right. So it's right on the edge of the nursery and... Um, well, something to look forward to over the next three or four weeks as it's flowering. Mm. You've got Absolutely. L- got lots of plants for sale. Everybody be wanting it, Jeremy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did actually check uh, yesterday afternoon and uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. We come along and enjoy the plant at least. <laughs> I, uh, it's one of Fleming's they, uh, they were selling a year or two back and uh, – um, it, it is around. It just comes out in dribs and drabs. Yes, right, mm. right. I must say, um, round Eltham, we've had an explosion of all the kunzia out in yeah, flower. Yeah, it's all, yeah. all it's in. It's amazing at the moment. And, and all the pollinators have gone mad, you know, things like hoverflies and all Yes, the, yes. The, this year, I, I don't think I've seen as many hoverflies, but, you know, you, you tend to forget from one year to the next, but they've just been everywhere. Mm. You know, huge numbers. So, yeah, good. Lots of other insects, lots of dragonflies around too with the extra moisture. Lots I've of noticed. mosquitoes, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, well, they're all right. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> not when you go into the garden and get bitten madly yeah. everywhere. It's, mm. it's a bit of a menace, but never mind. Can't do much about it. No, well, birds will catch them. Yep. That's good. Yep. Lizards will catch them. Yes. And carnivorous plants will oh, catch yeah, them. Oh, yeah, our carnivorous plants are they're just... The chock-a-block, the, chock-a-block the leaves, you know, the modified right. pictures. Yes. Yeah, they're just uh, the Saracenias and you know, not full but nearly full. Right. Mm. Okay, I must get to some community announcements. Of course, most people are starting to wind up for the year, um, particularly some of the uh, the gardening groups, but there's still a couple of things on for people to go to and the first one to mention of course is that it's the first Sunday in the month and that means that once again uh, for the last time this year Villa Alba will be open to the public this afternoon. Uh, Opens from um, 1 through till 4 of course and uh, it's both the Historic House and the RJ Hamer Heritage Garden. The address is at 44 Walmer Street in Kew. Melway's reference there is 44H6. Now, they've also got a limited selection of plants for sale today, um, which, of course, might make a wonderful Christmas uh, present for people. Uh, So they do have um, some uh, crinum lilies. They've got uh, pots of of Ionocera uh, nitida, which is a hedging plant. They've got pots of mini-leafed ivy. Um, for hanging baskets and things or training round uh, to make a Christmas wreath, for instance. Uh, they've got some Japanese maples and um, possibly some seeds from their uh, special heritage sweet peas also might be available. So that's all happening out at Villa Alba this afternoon. Admission is $10, concession is $8, children are free and afternoon tea is available with a $3 donation. 
Now, coming up with uh, Friends of Burnley Gardens, uh, Wednesday the 14th of December, they've also got a Christmas plant sale on. This is running from 12 noon through till 3 in the afternoon. Um, the location is outside the Student Union building. Parking, of course, is in Yarra Boulevard there. And if you want to see a full list of uh, what plants they will have for sale, you can go to their website, which is www.fobg.org.au. So that's fobg.org.au for a full list of the plants they have for sale. Now, uh, we did uh, receive quite late, I'm afraid, from a listener... um, a query. It came through as an email that was sent to uh, the station here. Unfortunately, went straight to uh, to uh, the station's uh, spam box, and uh, they've only just realised that it was uh, a message for the gardening show. But Roger, I'll get you to have a, a chat about it if you would. It's always amazing what you find in spam. Yes, it and, is. And people often don't check their spam boxes regularly, and we probably should do it or more often. Or they just click because, delete on the whole box. Yeah. And, yes. So now and again you might find important messages in That's there. That's right. It's to do with native frangipanis, Hymenosperum flavum, and uh, the person is asking about, well, they've got two native frangipanis, four to five years old, 2.5 metres tall. They want to move them. Now, they could be moved with uh, a bit of work done. I don't know how quickly they need to do it, but it would probably be better to do it, say, even late autumn or even early spring. But uh, by uh, you know cutting down with a sh- nice sharp um, spade around, just uh, if depending on how wide they are, but probably probably half a metre out from the, the trunk, I suppose, might be okay to go down. And um, by putting on some plant starter and other things like that, it uh, will help develop the the root growth. And then they could be dug out late, dug out later. But you'd need lots of people helping you, or even a machine to do it. But the other alternative, and they've asked whether they can be cut back hard. Native frangipanis, you can cut back as hard as you like. They're plants you can cut into leafless wood and they will reshoot from there. So if you uh, would like to uh, try cutting them back hard first, you could do that. Um, But uh, it will help promote growth lower down. And this sometimes happens with native frangipanis. They can go up and they can be quite sparse. You know, they have horizontal branching and be quite sparse. But you can prune them back as hard as you like and they should be okay. If you're a bit doubtful about how hard you should prune it back, don't prune it, you know, right down to ground level or anything, but to take probably a third off um, and just see how the plant responds and then you can, if it responds well, you can go back a bit harder later. uh, Okay. But they can be pruned back quite hard. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. It's probably worth saying that the native frangipani is not related at all to the introduced frangipani, 
the relationship is in the fragrance. That's why it's called native frangipania. It's in the Potosporum family. And driving in this morning, I was pointing out a particular... Roger was driving. I was looking left and right and pointed out... At the moment, there are some beautiful trees around covered in... Uh, lovely flowers, they usually start blooming about October and the flowers are cream, but then as the flowers age, they go to yellow, orange and almost a burnt orange. Yeah, you can't even get purple. Just, just mm. lovely fragrance. Mm. Mm. So there's trees in flower now which are the native frangipani. There are dwarf forms around. There's been a couple of uh, ones. I think it's Golden Nugget which is probably the most best performing one as far as flowering. Some of the other dwarf ones can grow like mad and don't tend to flower. But uh, Gold Nugget, I, th- I think, I'm pretty sure it's Gold Nugget, is one that was released maybe a couple of years ago, and that does flower well and, and keeps very compact. Okay. Might, might, they say dwarf in time, you know, it might get two metres plus, but dense is dense is dense. Right. Excellent. Jeremy, have you got any uh, plans for this summer for music or entertainment in the garden? Oh, oh yes. Right. <laughs> in fact, we're, uh, yes, I, I, um, we, we have Ozak putting on Macbeth. And, uh, and normally That's they, a heavy <laughs> one this year. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, uh, well, well, there's two oddities about it. We've always done light-hearted Shakespeare up until now and there's nothing, no jokes in Macbeth. <laughs> no, certainly isn't. We, we did have Hamlet a couple of years ago and we had a, um, uh, a, a local actor uh, playing Hamlet, uh, someone from Sassafras, which okay. was, was quite quite uh, curious because Oz actor based in Ballarat, but they, the actors from all over the Victoria actually. Yes. Uh, but the Hamlet was absolutely brilliant. Okay. Uh, I just can't remember the guy's name now, but um, but, uh, but the intriguing thing about it was the number of jokes in Hamlet. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, people might... were you know, laughing quite regularly, but right. I, I don't remember any jokes in Macbeth. No, uh, no. Uh, so, so that's one thing. And the other thing is uh, instead of uh, January, it's, it's on the last weekend of this month. Oh, Which, okay. when you think, is the 30th and 31st. And so we actually have um, Macbeth on New Year's Eve. Good heavens. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did a double take when they suggested that weekend, and, and there were various reasons why it's happening. But uh, but then I thought, well, you know, it's a twilight performance. Uh, the the, um, the play starts at uh, about half past six, finishes before nine o'clock. And so people can go off and enjoy the rest of the evening doing whatever they want to do on New Year's Eve. Exactly. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, so yeah. There's another three hours to go. Yes. No, so, uh, really so get them in the mood, I'd say. <laughs> One way or another. <laughs> so anyway, we're head on our website for a few days now and uh, selling tickets. Uh, and um, anyone interested, well, have a look at the website and and um, um, go through to try booking. And the other thing, we're, we're doing another a couple of events too. Um, um, we, we have uh, two groups putting on music. Well, curious enough, from Scotland, but right. it's a, but a popular music, but fairly serious. Well, no, how would you call it? Um, slightly more sophisticated. It's not not folk music. Okay. It's it's, it's but it's it's uh, on the other hand, it's not serious music either. It's sort of popular uh, middle of the road music. <sighs> I'm not putting this very well at all. Am I? <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, 
Well, one of the musicians is Simon Rickard. Right. So, uh, so Simon's coming along with his Baroque bassoon. So it's Baroque music. Right. And so one of the groups is um, the Evergreen Ensemble, and they're coming in February and putting on a, 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 a music from mainly from Scotland and, and France and Scandinavia. Um, but the sort of thing you would have heard in inns perhaps or, um, well, castles or, or well, they don't have uh, uh, lairds. What, what do lairds live in Scotland? I just can't think. But, but, but you know. Estates. But, yeah, well, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but... but uh, uh, but some slightly obscure but really interesting composers and um, playing some really interesting instruments. So so that's all happening towards the end of February and in January we have um, a, a, a two musicians who, again, are part of the same movement and playing similar music but a little bit earlier again from the 17th century. Okay. Uh, Sarah Wade and Jessica Foote and Sarah Wade uh, plays small pipes and concertina. Now, what are small pipes? Uh, well, I think they're, they're bagpipes. Oh, okay, except, okay. except not the big ones. Right. <laughs> they're the little bagpipes that are very quiet and gentle and, and, and really interesting and don't drone quite so much. Okay. <laughs> that seems <laughs> so, a whole new concept. Yeah, so, yeah, so they're, they're the bagpipes that you can enjoy from a five or six metres away rather than from five <laughs> or six hundred metres away. Yes. <laughs> And um, so uh, it'll be interesting. But the, those two concerts are not actually on our website yet, but I'm hoping to put them on um, over the next week or so. Okay. Okay. Excellent. So various things happening. Yes, and, wonderful. And um, diggers doing their workshops and everything else happening. That'll all continue yes, through? Yep. Yes. Yeah, they, they had a workshop uh, yesterday on, on keeping chooks. Okay. Um, and they, the workshops are monthly at the beginning of each month, on the first weekend of each month. So mm-hmm. it's just a case of checking the diggers' um, website and, and figuring it out what, what your particular interest is. Okay, excellent. Oh, I, I do think that the combination of music or, or plays or whatever in, in a garden is just magical, I think, particularly as you put them on in sort of the twilight time. When um, you know the, you can just see the light gradually going, and and sit back and listen to some music. I don't think there's anything better. Really yep. relaxing, just just a wonderful atmosphere to be part of. Yeah, if anyone who's not been, we we put the these shows on in our theatre, and it's an, actually a very simple outdoor theatre, a circle of grass sloping, and a little stage area at the base of the grass, and the whole thing is surrounded by beech trees. So. Um, it's a row of old um, green and copper beach below the stage area, which acts to reflect the sound a little bit. Yes, right. <laughs> and a huge old copper beach on the right-hand side, which is uh, quite a historic tree, actually, came from England. Ted Woolrich brought it in from England as part of a little collection of named varieties of beach back in the 1920s. So it's um, got quite a bit of history to it. And uh, then a beach hedge running around the um, theatre itself, which is Green Beach. But the same tree is cut to about two metres high. Okay. And looking very nice. And just otherwise, uh, apart from that, our lawn 
<clears throat> which is recovering now from the lyrebirds turning it upside down during the winter. Aerated <laughs> uh, it well. Yeah. <laughs> they're very good at that. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> a bit too good sometimes. Oh, yes. They've had no shortage of lyrebirds. Yes. The, the, the whole sections of the garden were aerated. Uh, yeah, they moved down into the, the big mountain ash down below us uh, for the summer and... and um, uh, but uh, during the winter, we, we had gangs of them uh, working their way through the garden. It was <laughs> interesting, keeping us on our toes. Goodness me. <laughs> and um, what's the, the hot border looking like at the moment? Is that in full colour or not um, quite yet? The, the, a bit too well, early? Yeah, the, because things have been so slow, um, the, the, the colour's building up. We, we just finished working on the borders last week. And um, so they're still filling in. There's a little bit of colour now, um, but virtually all the, all the rest of the garden is still flowering. So we, we have cowmeas flowering. We, the shrub borders are absolutely in full cry. Um, Spinosissima roses flowering. Scotch roses, Scotch briar roses. <laughs> Seems to be a theme, doesn't it? It does. But, those, <laughs> but we've got about four or five of those. Okay. They're, they're just absolutely brilliant at the moment. Of course, they flower for about two or three weeks each year, so you you, you got to be got to be quick. That's uh, right to see them. Yes, um, <clears throat> and one or two of the David Austins. Um, the the summer borders will most probably be at their uh, well fill in over uh, and, and begin flowering. I'd, I'd say in about two weeks' time. Okay. But um, they carry on from there, of course. Oh so yes. It's, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens this year. It's just been so slow and so late that. Um, I suspect we'll have an extra couple of weeks at the end of the season if we have a conventional summer. Yes, yes, true. But for anyone who's not seen them, you really have to come two or three times during the summer. So um, the end of December, mid-January, mid-February, some point in March. Mm. What's that? Four times. Yeah, <laughs> four times. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> yes. Okay. Roger, um, I might just, uh, before we get started on some of the plants you've brought in, I might just... Uh, Remind listeners that we will open up our talkback lines now. If you'd like to phone in and ask a gardening question, we'd love to hear from you this morning. Uh, we are running through until 9.15, but uh, the earlier you can jump on the phones, um, the better, so that we don't get a great rush at the last minute and can't spend much time talking to you. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Roger, let's talk about one plant before uh, some of these calls come through. Okay, thanks, Pam. Um, just brought in a, a couple of Stylidiums trigger plants, and uh, these have been, you'll see these around in nurseries, uh, little low-growing ones. There's a pink one and an apricot one. Uh, the pinkish one is Stylidium bulbiferum, and it's one of the plants that puts down aerial roots as it goes along. But uh, one of the reason, main reasons for bringing them, most Stylidiums, tend to have a summer dormancy and people buy them looking beautiful in pots Then they keep watering and watering and watering and then they wonder why in March the plants are dead. They just don't like too much water over the summer period. And a lot of Australian plants, that's their dormancy period, summer, they shut down. Right. Whereas, um, you know, a lot of them will flower or grevilleas and that will thrive in, in winter and so they... So their dormancy period tends to be during the hot weather. But they're great little container plants um, and there's a range of stylidiums. Some of them are very short-lived, naturally. Some of them are annuals. 
but there, there are a few. And there's another one here, the apricot one is often sold as Stididium bulbiferum, but it's probably Stididium ciliatum. They're from Western Australia, but they're great container plants and also for rockeries. If you can give them lots and lots of sunshine, they will grow okay in semi-shade, but they probably like to be out in the full sunshine. Small flowers with little triggers that have this capacity to reset themselves and so you can play with little bits of grass and poke in and the trigger will come boom across and lands on it, what it does. It lands on the back of insects and puts some pollen and insects go around so they help with pollination. But they're a fascinating group of plants. I don't know, there's well over 100 species, different types of trigger plants. And if, you know, you come across some, there's the Victorian one, Stylidium graminifolium and Armeria um, will do well in pots and uh, also in gardens. So uh, anyway, look look out for trigger plants. Okay. Gwen's just got a shock because one triggered. <laughs> I triggered it with my ballpoint pen. I need to apologise because... Um, but look, it, they're great plants for kids too. Any, It's a bit like the Venus flytrap. You know, any plant that becomes active, kiddies get fascinated with them. And, um, yeah, get a trigger plant for, for Christmas and... As Roger said, the triggers do reset. Poor little thing thinks it's transferring pollen and sort of keeps having a go at <laughs> reproducing that way. But, um, yeah, the, the greater stylidium or trigger plant um, or a Venus flytrap, which isn't native, but, you know, is another plant which is active in terms of the insects that um, attracts and uses. But, um, yeah, good Christmas presents. Absolutely. And these little ones are quite easy to propagate from cuttings too. So you can, okay. you know, you so can, you just can multiply them mul- up. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. All right, let's go to our first caller and we have uh, Michael who's out in Hawthorne. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, folks. Thanks for taking the call. Um, I'm a bit of a novice gardener. I'm in, as you said, in Hawthorne. I've always wanted to grow avocado trees and I've got two of them um, in the same plot one of them is, is probably only two metres tall, and it's um, they both flower prolifically. The small one has kept um, lots and lots of flowers, and has got 50 to 100 um, baby avocados on it. Great. The other one had thousands of flowers, and every one of them dropped off, and it's much healthier. It's sort of over three metres tall. Um, and I'm just wondering why they're different sorts, if we don't know how. Um, I'm just wondering why one seems to lose all its flowers, even though it seems to be much healthier. Um, and the other ones managed to keep them. Right. I mean, normally I would I would say, um, you know, maybe there was a lack of pollination. But uh, if you have, if the other one has managed to hold its flowers and actually have baby fruit on it, you would think that mm. um, well, that the they would both. The, yeah, the reason for the two together. Are you guys um, know much better than me about the A B? Yes, yes, yes. And, and that's why those two sorts of, in fact. It, it was actually, I don't know if he was having land with me, but it was an avocado, avocado grower in Queensland that recommended I grow the two really close together and the trunks would actually meld. Okay. And effectively have an A and a B, and, and that's what I'm doing. Right. Um, and and so they've got identical soil, and um, and they're both quite healthy, but um, the biggest, healthiest one is just dropping everything. And it did this last year too, so... Right. Now, I, I was actually... Graham Morrison uh, was in the studio um, just recently and I was talking to him about the same thing because I've I've got two avocado trees. Uh, both of mine flowered really prolifically this year, but um, I haven't got any fruit coming. 
Um, and he was suggesting that um, with avocados, this is uh, can be um, a fairly common uh, problem. And he was suggesting that uh, what you can do to really try and um, push along the fruit is to actually cincture the trunk. And by cinturing, you make a very, very small cut in the bark um, right around the tree, almost as though you're ring barking it. But if you do it as a spiral going up the trunk a little way so that it doesn't actually join up. Um, And you do that in about August... Um, and that can actually uh, promote, um, really, really push the avocado trees along. And so uh, Graham was suggesting that um, as a technique for my trees next year. But uh, I was going to say, Michael, that um, Graham is actually going to be in on the show next week as well. Okay. So, um, so uh, I can put this to him, or if you'd like to ring back again next week and have have a more detailed chat with him about it and. He might have some other suggestions for you as well. All right, that's fantastic. Thanks. Yeah, if, if I don't get in, please do put it to him, and I'll try and listen. Yes. I'll catch the podcast. Yeah, well, I've, but, I've made a note of it here now, so that I will put it to him. But if you'd like to talk to him personally yourself as well, um, do feel free to ring in next week. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Good on you, Michael. Yes, bye. bye. Right. Next up, we have uh, Frank out in Craigieburn. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, all. Uh, my, uh, I hope I'm not diverting the subject, but I'm talking about trees. Uh, That's if you, fine. If you can forgive me. That's no. fine. And more locally. Now, my uh, idea of gardening has been all trial and error through all my stages. Other words, experience. And uh, I just uh, wondered the other day about trees. When you plant a tree, can we, do you think... It would be a good idea to plant it on an angle, say a 19-degree sloping on the stake. So when uh, I've noticed the trees grow very quick, and they look small when you've got them in your hand, but the sugar gum and the other, the, uh, the, the spotted, what is it, spotted gum? Spotted gum, yeah. They grow tremendously. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and to get a man to chop a tree down is about $1,000 now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, you could do it yourself. Like, there's a lot of accidents, of course. That's why it's a deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if you have a little angle on the tree so you can cut it down uh, as you want it, like, say it's hanging over the side of the road, mm-hmm. you could slant it when you plant it. How's that? Stand it when you plant it on an angle. <laughs> on an angle. Yeah, because so when it does grow, it's got to slope the way out of, out of all danger. You know what I mean? Oh uh, yeah, I could think I, it's a good idea. Well, it's a it's a possibility. Um, one of the things is that, of course, probably the tree will go upright after a short time. Yes, it might start off that way. Um, how how long it's likely to keep on growing at an angle is a bit doubtful, but um, well, if, where I live, it's, it's very windy this year. Yeah, uh, every year I think, and the, all the trees have a slant on from the north. You know, yeah, they all slanted there away from the north wind because that's the most prevalent, and mm. the other, or maybe the southwest, they, they all have an angle by themselves without staking them. But I mean. Uh, 
I, I, I put solar, solar panels on the house and I'd remove about four trees. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Great big ones. Yeah. Well, that was about a couple of thousand dollars. Yeah, no, it's an expense, Frank. And, and, and if it was sloping away from the house, I yeah. I could, it would have been safe to, to chop it down because it's... Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you learn well, by your mistakes. Yeah, look, well, it's a theory, and uh, whether other people would like to try it, and you know, I suppose it's no, a long... No, it's a, just an idea. Yeah, it's no, it's look, it's an idea, and it's a long-term project, I'd say. But, uh, no, it's not so long, they go pretty quick. Yeah, 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 but uh, it's always good to think, you know, out of, out of the square, you know. Often uh, there are things that we're told we will be reading books to do, and... Yeah, but I found out... Reading books is not is oh, not that, uh, Well, that's right. I was. Just, it's like it, it's ex, uh, practic, practical. Oh, there's some good books. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I am. You haven't uh, got any. <laughs> I, I don't think uh, armchair books. You can put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And you all talk about the, you know, the high class uh, orchids and things like that. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I, have a, I know. Well, I might, you might get someone like Kevin Hines now and again. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, look, look. Thank, thanks for the suggestion and. Now, uh, Frank, uh, uh, is Jeremy here? Uh, I, I, I remember looking at a photograph of birch trees uh, growing somewhere in New England on a slope, and um, these trees have been um, hit by snow, which had slid oh, down yeah. the slope, uh-huh. and all the trees were on an angle. Uh, they'd been pushed sideways oh, yeah. as, oh, yeah. as young seedlings. And then they straightened up again very quickly, and away they got. It hadn't it hadn't really slowed them down at all. Most probably the best thing is to just choose trees which are more or less the right height for the position. The first thing I did when I came here, plant trees, trees and trees. Yeah, and, and uh, some of them have got to slope on by themselves. You know, just but oh, yeah. never mind. Uh, a few months ago, a quick, I'll be quick. A few months ago, I suggested that pepper was a good way of controlling rabbits. Yeah. Six months ago. Yep. And I didn't, uh, I don't think, uh, it succeeds with me. Good. And I've never heard any discussion about it. Okay, okay. Okay, thanks very much. Good on you, Frank. Right. Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Frank. Right, well, I'm delighted to say that we've been joined in the studio by Dr. Anne Vale. Um, Anne is a historian, an author, a lecturer and a garden photographer. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent, excellent. Now, before, I know that, that primarily we've invited you in because you've, you've just um, self-published a beautiful book and we're going to discuss that in detail. But I do want to, for listeners who don't know terribly much about you, you've been very heavily involved with um, things like... Uh, Australian Garden History Society, haven't you? Correct, yes, yes, um, which I think is a wonderful organisation. As a, <clears throat> as a madly passionate gardener and garden visitor, um, one of the lovely things about the Garden History Society is we go on the most fabulous excursions and see gardens that perhaps you wouldn't get to see. Um, and nine times out of ten, you also have the person curating that garden or managing that garden telling you all about it. So it's a, it's a real privilege. And, of course, we have wonderful conferences and, and other days out and lecture series and so forth. So, yes, it's, I, I um, joined the committee a few years ago and became vice chair and then chair. And I have to say it's one of the most significant period of 
my life doing that sort of thing. I learned a lot and thoroughly enjoyed it. And I've, I'm a bit of a, just a consumer now um, <laughs> of the committee. But, um, yes, I'm, I think it's a wonderful organisation. And the society actually also uh, do um, help out with, with restoring some of these older gardens, don't oh, they? Oh, yes, yes. Fran and Malcolm Fall are uh, the driving force behind that and they have working bees on historic gardens on a, on a regular basis. And, uh, of course, they're very warmly Receive because people that own these big heritage gardens, they're uh, uh, they have all kinds of issues. I mean, obviously they have um, aging trees and borders and paths and hedges that have gone out of out of control. And so, uh, any help that they can get is always very gratefully received. And it's one way that a lot of city folk can actually get involved in mm. in in gardening, full stop. But also do it in a place that's really very special. So yes, and, and lots of advocacy for um, for properties that need some protection or some support. So yes, and and of course the other thing, Anne, is that um, with with trying to restore some of these historical properties, our climate is warming, and some of these uh, some of the original plants in these gardens really aren't going to be suited for the warming climate and 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 so how do you how do you restore something do you automatically plant what was there before or do you start to think about something that might be an equivalent but might be a little more suited to our to our warming climate yes that's right i think um tim entwistle from the botanic gardens um uh when i interviewed him he had something interesting to say about that because people sometimes say, oh, the, our botanic gardens is changing, it's a heritage garden, and yes, it is, but gardens do change. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the plants they planted years ago, you can still plant, but you plant a different variety, mm. or a, di- a different type of the same thing that can tolerate um, not just drought, but also the other extreme, because what we're having is extremes of climate. True. Um, and then, although we're planting a lot more succulents these days... It's not actually anything new. I mean, and Von Mueller and, and Gilfell and um, Lufferin from Burnley Gardens, they all love their succulents and their drought-tolerant plants and they were just as aware of the issues of planting the right thing back there 100 years ago. We've mm. just been a bit slow to learn, actually. Yes, <laughs> true, very true. <clears throat> now, getting back to, to the book, you, you released your, your first book in 2013 yes. um, on exceptional Australian garden makers. Yes. Now, this, this latest book is virtually like a sequel, isn't it? It's, it's really talking it about the next generation. Um, so it's influential Australian garden people, their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I say, it's, it's like the next generation on, so that these all these people in this book are all still well and truly alive, and you've <laughs> actually been able to go and, and interview each one of them. Yes, I think that's um, the big difference between the first book and the second book is, is my first book was my PhD rewritten for a broader audience, and um, a significant amount of that was desktop analysis and research because many of the people had passed away because it it started with colonial times and went through to about 1980. Um, And so I had to do a lot more of the photographs for that and a lot more desktop uh, research. The current generation, of course, as you say, we're all alive. That's a big bonus. I interviewed every single one of them. And um, it's resulted in a totally different style of book because... The new book 
is really the people in the book telling their story in their own words. And I've knitted it all together. Right. And so it's a very different style of book. It's very contemporary. There's lots of white space in the book and stunning pictures by some of Australia's absolutely top class photographers. Only a few of mine in this first book, but that's okay. Um, I'm only an amateur photographer. Um, I'm pretty chuffed that it's my picture on the front cover. Oh, yes. And, and I don't choose that. The designer chooses that. Right. So I was, I was pretty chuffed about that. But it does change the entire um, uh, style of book and in some ways the purpose of it because, yes, it's a series of biographies, but it tells a story of how this generation have been educated and how their attitudes are somewhat different or evolving compared to the previous generations. Mm. And they're all trying to make their mark in their own way. Individuality was a really big theme that came through in the book. And they're all, of course, very conscious of the climate and uh, appropriate planting. Uh, One of the big... um, Uh, themes that came out of the book was a discussion about do we have an Australian style? Mm -hmm. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, That was an interesting one because uh, when you ask people, they basically said, well, it's a load of nonsense because how can you have an Australian style when you have a a country that's so big and so diverse in in, um, culture and climate and so forth? But we do have people who are creating gardens that are distinctly Australian. Mm. And so I'm thinking of people like Paul Johnson, Fiona Brockoff. Um, Their gardens are distinctly Australian, but they are not the same at all. And uh, the, the emphasis really in this generation is creating gardens that are very much individual, pertinent to the client, pertinent to the architecture that they almost always surround, and also relevant to the landscape that they are in and appropriate for the landscape Mm. that they they are in Mm. and in that way each garden does become an Australian garden in its own right um, because it is appropriate for where it's at. Yes, yes. Mm. I was was interested Anne in just uh, the criteria for selection of the people that you chose. Um, You know just why did you choose this group of people? I'm always asked that. Um, When I did the first book, I was inundated with people who said, oh, you should include this one and you should include that one. And it really became almost overwhelming, you know. I mean, oh, my goodness, how can I include all of these people? Um, I was fortunate because doing that research was through academia and so therefore I was forced to have criteria and uh, work out how I was going to decide who to choose. And I used exactly the same criteria for the second book as I did the first. So people had to have enough ticks in what I called their um, uh, markers of influence. And so everybody in this book has won awards or been innovative or have has published or have had their work published. Um, Some of those or all of those. And they all have to have enough ticks in order to be in the book. So what we have is a a group of people who deserve to be in the book, but they are not exclusively so. And someone else could write another book. Now, obviously, you have the high flyers 
and you need to include those and and they've been done you know but there are a lot more people around the country who could very easily have been included in the book who would tick just as many markers of influence in the book but it does it does give the writer the author the confidence when you have a criteria like that um, because even though somebody else might choose other people you know that you have a logic to the people that you've chosen Um, having said that it is still very subjective because Mm. I have my own background my own culture my own education and I'm looking at things through my eyes someone else might have completely different Oh, yeah, that, that's fine. Going to do another book? <laughs> Everybody keeps asking me that as well. <laughs> yeah, I might just add here, for people who are listening, they might be interested in some of the people in the book, so I could very quickly run through the list if you wish, yes, Pam. Yes, that's a good idea. Yeah, okay. The people included in this one, and it looks sometimes it's four pages. on. It's not just a paragraph. Jane Edmondson, Paul Plant, Josh Byrne, John Rayner, Tim Entwistle, Annette McFarlane, Marilyn Kushel, Stephen Ryan, who most of our listeners would know. <laughs> Can I interrupt there? Yes. And all of those people <clears throat> are in the first chapter, which I've called Mind Shapers. Mm-hmm. And they're the people that actually shape the way we think about gardens. And actually, because we all have an idea of what a garden is, and it could be very different. Your idea of what a garden is and what I, my idea of what a garden is is could be quite totally different. So they're all in the chapter called the Mind Shapers and then we have the Garden Creators. Right, and the Garden Creators, <laughs> this chapter includes Arno King, Fiona Brockoff, Grady Brand from WA, Paul Bangay, Miles Baldwin, Janine Mendel, Andrew Laidlaw, Philip Johnson, Kate Cullity, Jim Fogarty and Michael Bly. Yes, and and, and as you said, by mind shapers, they're basically communicators, aren't they, that first group of people? Because um, they've still, they're they're putting across their ideas to the general public in one way or another. That's Um, right. Usually, whether it be by by media or by writings or whatever, but but they're communicators, whereas the, uh, the garden creators are all garden designers. They design gardens in their own right. That That's right. And it's not exactly black and white because a lot of the designers also write. Oh, yes. You know, yes, and, there's a crossover. And, and some of the mind shapers have also designed some gardens. So, you know, sometimes it was a little bit of a grey area there. But <clears throat> I thought it was important to break them into those two groups um, because I think the people that communicate to us um, do shape the way we think about designing our gardens or living in the, in the landscape mm. as much as the high-flying designers because we don't all get to see what the high-flying designers are doing. But most of us listen to the radio or watch television or we're on social media and so we come in contact with the other people perhaps more often. Yes, mm. yes. Um, what I really love about the book, though, is is actually your third um, area, which is where you pull it all together. Yes. And that is where I find a lot of the excitement of the book is because um, asking some of those questions as to, as to um, you know, what really, in, what really inspired all of the people in this book and so many of them um, end up with, with very similar, um, uh, you know, answers. 
Yes. Uh, they, they, all, they all refer to personal experience. Many of them refer to starting as a child with the influence of a grandparent or mm. literally getting their hands in the ground, yeah. you know. Many of them also, I noticed, uh, refer back to people like Edna Walling, mm. that, that where they gain so much of their inspiration. So I've, mm. I found this a fascinating part of the book. Um, do you want to elaborate a bit more about some of the other common themes that um, emerge? Absolutely. I'd, I think that that chapter called Unpacking the Themes is important because it's enjoyable to read people's life stories. And if you read a dozen life stories, you know, you can enjoy them all. But then I think it's really useful if somebody who can who has been involved in all of this can pull it all together and pull out those things. Now, it's not very scientific, but if I've gone around the country and somebody in Queensland tells me the same thing as somebody in WA or somebody in, in, in Melbourne, and we are talking to people who are all actively involved and, and um, have achieved a lot. So we're talking to people who know what they're talking about. If you hear the same story again, mm-hmm. I felt as a writer that I could confidently say this is a theme. And I ended up with, I don't know how many there are now, I'll have to count them, a dozen themes. Um, one of the themes that came through, particularly from the teaching people, education people, was that in this country we're somewhat reluctant to um, positively, criti- critically analyse the way we do things. That, uh, And it's funny because they also said that the tall poppy syndrome is alive and well in this mm, country. Right. Um, but they felt that there was far too much in the gardening world of saying that everything was beautiful and everything was lovely, when in fact with when you take in, into consideration climate change and social change and the differences in the way we are gradually living, we need to be more critical about what we're doing and what we're planting and how we're doing that. And so it was essential for me to be critical too yes. and pull it all together. Yes, exactly. I had to actually walk the talk, you know. Yes. Um, the other theme that came out of it, which we all know if you're involved in horticulture, is that apart from the high flyers in, in design... A lot of people involved in horticulture, their profession and their work is not valued as highly as other professions. Mm. And so it is difficult to attract young people at times. And it is um, it is something we need to look at more closely because at the end of the day, um, we need people with that good plant knowledge and that good education and we need to pay them appropriately because our cities have to be greened or we're going, we already are in strife. Yes, exactly. So our green space planted um, well with something that's going to give us what we need in our, in our cities, you have to have an education and you can't get that by just doing a two-year course. You mm. have to have apprenticeships and you have to pay people appropriately so they have ongoing learning and then can have the right input into our landscape so mm. that we are um, creating spaces to live in that are healthy and we feel good about. Yes. So that, that was another theme that came through. Um, I, I have to say that on that, on that theme, um, how blessed 
has Melburnians been to have something like Burnley? Mm, oh, that's right. I mean, so many, so many yeah. of the people in the book, so have, many of them. have mentioned back to their teachers, yes. at Burnley, yes, um, yeah. and and they name you know quite specifically people like John Patrick, um, like Peter May, Greg Moore, yeah, um, Ruth had, yes, yes, they've had such an influence on them, yes, and that 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 is just fantastic, mm. really fantastic. I think that even includes some of the people who are now living and working interstate. They have related back to having spent some time at Burnley. That's right. Mm. That's right. Yeah, so... It it was certainly a a golden era, that 1980s, early 1990s, where Burnley deliberately upgraded its education and by doing that they took on board uh, new graduates, Australian graduates, and they brought in people like John... Patrick um, um, and Hitchmau from the UK. And this generation in this book that went to Burnley at that time, they are just still blown away by the education that they had yes. and still appreciative of that education and how special it was. And it's a combination, though. It's the education itself, but it's also the passion. Mm. And they talked a lot about the passion of those teachers. Mm. It was a fantastic time, and to me it was just very sad when Melbourne University took it over, took Burnley. They really didn't know how to handle that place. <laughs> and so you lost, you know, a lot of um, training for horticulturists, and, mm. and it hasn't been really up to that standard since. So that, that was the sad part of uh, Melbourne University taking it. I think now they're starting mm. to, you know, perform much better and undertaking some really interesting things at Burnley. But it was just a sad time when there was a lot of excellent staff which disappeared from Burnley. Well, they they mm. lost the whole TAFE yeah. system. Yeah, that was a real sad time. Mm. Yes. So hopefully, you know, we can get back to uh, some of those glory days, which would be really wonderful for, for horticulture. Mm. Mm. I think we probably need um, – <clears throat> we probably won't. Mm. However, they are doing some amazing things at Burnley. I'm mm. not as – closely involved with anything at all anymore but just talking to people like John Rayner mm-hmm. um, there are a few things happening first of all the the, um, the associate degree type courses which are more to do with vocational training are as popular as ever and they're still running them the other thing that's happening is that um, there's more outreach to industry to have a collaboration between industry and the college because the college isn't providing that vocational training in the way that it did in the 80s and 90s. It has to be provided somehow. And so there's a collaboration now, a a pushing for a collaboration between the college and industry. And they're also, because of their high focus on research, very involved in things like green roof Oh, yeah, um, that's fine. structure, which which gets their name out there and oh, gets yeah. industry oh, yes. involved oh, again. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. And I, mm. I think it's just great that John Rayner has stayed there. I yes. think that's just been yes. wonderful that that he <laughs> is the still last there. man standing from well, that era. <laughs> but you know, I think it's just wonderful that, and yeah. now that you know he's more or less, I think, in charge down there. So uh, that that's that's great. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And as far as things that are starting to happen, are really good. Mm. Actually, uh, uh, on another level, the uh, uh, another influence I think has been the international landscape design conferences that kicked off oh. with uh, Tony Mugg back in the late 80s and then carried on 
well, over the last 10, 15 years with Warwick Forge. No, Ralph Neal was involved. Warwick very, and very Sue. Heavily. Yeah, Warwick and Sue. Yeah. And, yeah, <laughs> very much Warwick and Sue. Yeah. And uh, that, that has been absolutely essential to, to uh, horticulture on this level uh, right around Australia. And the fact that it's at the, it happens in Melbourne and people come from all over Australia and New Zealand to these conferences is uh, indicative of, of the... Um, of uh, well, the, the importance of horticulture um, in this part of the world. Oh, absolutely right. And I know that um, Andrew Laidlaw, in particular, but also um, people like Jim Fogarty and, and Paul Mange, they went to some of those very first landscape conferences. And I know Andrew. I remember I interviewed Andrew sitting in the in the gardens, and and I remember him saying, "It just knocked his socks off." The, all these amazing people that came that he'd never thought about landscape design in that way. And the other thing to remember too is those conferences introduced the whole idea to Australia of landscape architecture actually being a profession in the first place. Mm. Because when many of these people started, it was very much a new thing as to whether you could actually make a living out of designing gardens. It it hadn't been done before other than some really significant people. It hadn't been done as somebody who could go to college, university for two or three years and then set up a practice and become a landscape architect or a, a garden designer. And so it was all very new. And those conferences were were vital. And I think they still are. Mm. Mm. And even University of Canberra too was, uh, was another place where they had some really great uh, landscape people. And I was I see Michael Bly mentions yes. about his time there yes. and the influence of people there. So, you know, it's not just not Melbourne, but University of Canberra was a really pivotal move in those days to have landscape there. Yes, and the, and the other um, TAFE colleges around the country, so they did um, slowly follow in the Burnley footsteps. So eventually some of these people, whether they were in WA or Queensland, could actually go to to uh, TAFE colleges and get their qualifications. And some of them that were a little bit more advanced, like Annette McFarlane, was actually roped in to teach them because she had trained here and in New Zealand and had an apprenticeship scheme. And that's the other thing that I think is vital is is we really um, we really do need more of those apprenticeship schemes oh, so that yes. young people can actually get hands-on experience and travel. And I know a number of people in the book uh, when they were young, actually won scholarships to travel. Stephen did, Annette McFarlane did, and they travelled around to New Zealand or the UK or somewhere and actually got hands-on experience, and then they brought that back to Australia. Mm. And that's vital as well, mm. um, that kind of... And, and um, um, sorry, from Sydney, I'm having a... Baldwin, Miles Baldwin, yes. he got an apprenticeship with the Sydney Botanic Gardens. And then he went from there to a heritage garden and became a head gardener. And so he he had this amazing education. So, yes, we were very fortunate to have Burnley, but we must not forget that other states had other other facilities that people could go to. I agree Um, with you about the apprenticeships because if we can give a clear pathway to students, maybe we can attract more people into the industry. Um, You know... It's all very well that they, they, at the moment they just apply to go to Burnley off their own bat and then once they get through it's, well, do I, do I just have a go because I, don't, I really don't feel like I know what I'm doing yet? Do I just 
have a go because I so want to get involved with designing mm. gardens or what do I do? And, and, and they've sort of, um, they're not nurtured through and given that vital experience of, of, of being able to work with, with other much more experienced garden designers. That's so right. I, I, think it's, I think it's really crucial. I'd love to see the whole scheme really expanded and given a lot more weight. Yes. Well, you're going back to the days too where it was considered important. You have people like Kevin Hines who was in the first book who at one stage worked for the Melbourne Council and they had an apprenticeship scheme. And, you know, some people in the book um, actually went through that scheme with Kevin mm. um, and learnt their skills, you know, hands-on in a big garden somewhere. Mm. And there's nothing like hands-on, actually, just being in there and experiencing what happens, you know. You can learn a lot going to school and I believe it's essential to have some kind of formal education because it opens up your mind to thinking in a different way. And then you need to then follow that through with an mm. apprenticeship of some sort or a job that gives you that that hands-on experience. Mm. Yeah. I, I was talking. I was. Um, it was only only last week that I was actually in the botanic gardens for the award ceremony for um, Victorian School Garden Awards, uh, which of course was started by, by Kevin, Kevin Hines and yes. Paul Crow. Yes. And um, looking at the the number of children and the enthusiasm they have because they're their schools have been prepared to, to start a garden and to include gardening and horticulture and environmental studies in their curriculum. And we were looking at all these children sitting there, so loving the environment of, of, of the botanic gardens there, and thinking, now these are our future horticulturalists. They really, mm. they've got the enthusiasm already. They're already getting their hands dirty and loving it. They're learning about, yeah. you know, growing plants we, how do we nurture them onto the next step? You know, if they yeah. still love it when they get through high school, then we've got to nurture them and follow this whole thing through. And we could be looking at, at new, you know, directors of botanic gardens right around the world. Oh, absolutely. If we can just inspire yeah. them and, and keep that education going. Well, that, rem that reminds me that we do also have a, a couple of other really positive things. And the Australian... Um, the, Gardening Australia, um, that has had a big impact and lately there has also been a lot of emphasis on engaging children and then you've got um, children's gardens in schools that has really become strong again. And we've done all these things in the past. They're yes. not actually that new. They were being, you know, That's right. happening 100 years ago. But isn't it great? It's happening again. And even though these young ones, when they go to college, they probably won't have time. I, I don't... I haven't heard that high schools are really getting into this gardening at school, but because they've experienced it as young people, they will go back to it later at different times mm. of their lives. And they'll have experienced it. That's the important mm. thing. They'll have had their hands in the dirt. They'll have grown their own food. Um, they'll have cooked it, hopefully, at school as well. And so um, they have that experience. You can't take it away. No. It goes with them. And and yeah. and and I, I can tell you that a lot of the secondary schools are starting to become more involved, um, and they're starting to follow on from the primary school mm. age. So um, it is gradually stepping up to that that next level, which is which is wonderful. Yeah, terrific. Because often with schools, you really just need one champion teacher. Mm. Oh yes, and yeah. and if you don't have that, it, it can be extremely difficult. I, I just know of one chap who ended up being principal of a few high schools, and every school he went to, there was gardening, 
this is you know secondary. Yes. And he he just had a tremendous influence. Yes. Just on even subjects, environmental subjects, and stuff like that. So. If some of these young people you're talking about, Pam, become teachers mm. and, you know, can take that horticultural stream through to their teaching, that that's exactly. just so important. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Unfortunately, at this stage, you, you, you're spot on because it can often be very dependent on just one enthusiastic teacher within a school. And if that teacher moves on, then the whole program can, can yeah. potentially fall apart. So we need the the principals of schools to be right behind it to um, to encourage their staff to, to maintain the programs and keep them going because the children... Are, I mean, it, it crosses... Horticulture and gardening crosses every possible area of the curriculum. Mm. Um, you know, so... And, and the kids just love being outside. They love learning through practical things and things mm. they can see and feel. And so it's just a perfect way of of teaching, you know, things like maths that otherwise um, can be a bit yes. hard to get through to. Well, just science, you know. Oh, science, in yeah. absolutely, and, you know, environmental science, um, you know, fauna, flora, there's so much to learn. Um, yes. And getting back to the book, you decided to self-publish this one. Yes, yes. Well, what, what was that? Well, what I did was with the first book, um, I had a publisher produce it for me. And, and I pay for it because publishing is very different these days. A oh, publisher yes. doesn't want to know unless they can make a fair bit of money out of it. And so if you want something published, um, you have to either pay for it or do it yourself. Um, it used to be called vanity publishing, which I find quite offensive, but there you go. Um, so anyway, I observed what the publisher did and um, I decided that this time round I would do it myself and... I have to say I absolutely loved it, loved the process. Now, it doesn't mean to say I want to do it for somebody else. It's very different doing yes. it when it's your baby. Yes. But I also find it very interesting that so many people want to know and ask me, um, how do you go about publishing? So I not only love doing it myself and working out the various components and choosing my own people to do the various components, but I love talking about it. And so as of next year, I'm actually doing some talks on how do you go about it, what the pitfalls are, what the components are, um, you know, different books require different treatments. But, yeah, it was fun. I, I, it was hard work and you have to be very focused because there are lots of things that can go wrong. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's it's about finding a, a, a good editor, a good indexer, a fabulous designer, which I have from my first book. Um, I tried very hard to get it printed in Australia. I would love to have had it printed in Australia. Sadly, the cheapest price to produce the same product was exactly double yes. of having it done overseas. Yes. So that that was very sad. I would much prefer to have had it done here, but I couldn't do much about that. Otherwise, the end up the end product ends up being too expensive. Yes. Um, but you, so you project manage it, and it's a team. It's a team effort, and um, my team did a fabulous job. The, the the book people, the thing that people say about the book is what beautiful quality the book is. The oh, photographs, it's magnificent. Um, yeah. So yeah, look, it was fun, um, but it's not something you just go into lightly. I think you need to do a bit of homework because, and I had had that benefit of seeing exactly how it worked and what the components were and how it all has to go together. And mm. it does give you that final control. Oh, absolutely. Which is so important. Yes. Because people yep. you know, if, if it's published by a by another publisher, people do lose complete control over how the book ends up looking 
the That's shape, right. the feel, yeah. um, the content, it does get, get whittled away from you. Oh, absolutely. And at the end of the day, uh, I know publishers, I'm sure, care very much about their product and their authors and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's a business for them. Yes. And so if they can produce um, slightly less quality pictures or on slightly less quality paper and they can make a few more thousand dollars, well, Mm. obviously they're going to do that. Whereas when it's yours and it's your baby, you can insist you want this quality all the way through. Yes. Um, and yeah, it's very, very satisfying, I have to say, and, and I'm very happy with the result because it's been very well received. So it's Well, yeah. it's, a, it's a wonderful book, Anne. Congratulations on it. Um, I can only say that anyone at all who's interested in, in um, Australian gardening people, and a lot of them you've, you, you will have met quite a few of them through this program, people like Steve and... Um, or you have met them through through um, books that they themselves have written that we've talked about on the program. But I, if you're at all interested in reading their stories, in reading um, what I feel is the most important part, which is all the themes that come out after hearing about all these very different people from different walks of life, but who who all end up with so many of, of the same sorts of, of influences that have been on their lives. It's, it's, it's a fascinating read. Now, the book is called Influential Australian Garden People, Their Stories. Um, it is written, of course, by our guest here, Dr Anne Vale. Now, Anne, how, many, how do people get hold of a copy of the book? Oh, there's a variety of ways. It is available throughout the city in, in um, our good bookshops like Readings and Hill of Content and, okay. and Avenue and a number of others. Um, if you just Google my name or Herescapes, you'll come up with my web page and you can buy it directly through that. But it also lists the other places where you can get the book. So, okay. Um, and I post all over Australia Express Post. Recommended so. retail price is forty nine ninety nine. Would Correct. make a fantastic Christmas gift for I'm sure a lot of our listeners. So, uh, so uh, yes, anyone who's at all interested, influential Australian garden people, their stories by Dr. Anne Vale, and um, that uh, that word you mentioned for the website, Herescapes, which yes. is your company, isn't it? It is, it, and it's like Heritage Landscapes is how it came about. Right, okay. Um, so Herescapes, but either put my name in or that and, and I come up. Good, <laughs> excellent. Okay. Well, as I say, congratulations. All the best with it. I'm, I hope it does extremely well because you, you're mm. spreading the word. It's wonderful. Thank you for having me. It's a okay. pleasure. Okay, okay. Pam, can I just read out the spelling of that www sure. because people need to get it right or it gets all. H-E-R-I-S-C-A-P-E-S dot com dot A-U. Okay, fantastic. And again, thank you for joining us this morning, Anne. That's been great. All right, uh, we've uh, had a, a query from the outside line, Daniel from Hallam. Um, has noticed uh, many of the uh, blue bees that he saw last year, but he hasn't seen any this year. Um, wants to know our thoughts. Have you seen less blue bees, blue band of beans, I um, presume he means? Yes, yeah. Look, I must admit um, we've got lots of bees and um, lots, lots of insects this year, mainly because we've got water as well as just, you know, pollinate, plants to be pollinated. 
but I must say I haven't been checking to see whether they're the blue banded bees or not. Okay. Um, maybe there's some listeners who've got thoughts about, mm. you know, the bee population. Uh, where's Daniel from? Hallam. Hallam. Okay. So anyone, well, in the broader Melbourne area, fine, but I know some of the insects uh, cover more territory than others. But um, anyway, if anyone can... Uh, help David with that inquiry. Or da- sorry, Daniel, with the, that inquiry. Give have us you, a call. Have you noticed any in in Cloud Hill, Jeremy? I uh, uh, no. I, well, rather, I haven't been looking closely enough to 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 be sure. Right. No, there seems to be quite a few bees, but I uh, <laughs> no, I can't help. Yes. No, I must say I've seen quite a few bees in the garden. Um, lots of insects, but I haven't noticed any blue banded ones either. So. Mm. Um, all right. Now, the other question we've got from the outside line is uh, Ryan uh, in Hyatt um, has it potted rose. Uh, the buds aren't opening. Aphids? Possibly, yeah. I, I'm, I wonder how long it's been. Uh, the rose has been potted for, though. They need big pots. Um, so that's my only other thought. Um, the, the rose is not terribly happy in pots, generally. Yes, mm. yes. Um, might have even dried out or... Um, it's a bit hard without more information. Oh, it's a 34-centimetre 30, pot, we've just been told. It's quite a large pot. It is quite a large pot. Yeah. Um, for a small rose, it would be OK. But, mm. uh, yeah, but not for a larger one. Yeah, they, um, they need big barrels, really. Yeah, and, and as I say, they do need regular watering. Regular. I mean, you've got to care. Anything that's potted needs a lot more care than if it's out in the ground. My other thought would be... Um, which rose, <laughs> because there are so many of them. Yes. And maybe when the sergeants are in, which is maybe next weekend as a PEM or the uh, one after. No, um, next weekend, yeah, yes. Diana or, um, or Graham, Graham. Uh, particularly if we know just which of the many, many hundreds of roses it is, mm. uh, there may be some particular roses which look fantastic on the label but are very slow for mm. the buds to open. But I, I would also look for aphids. Yeah. On the rose because yeah. because they get into the buds and, and and affect the buds in particular and that could be another reason. Given that there's so many insects about at the moment and there are aphids about at the moment. Yeah, I just noticed the last couple of weeks our place is uh, in our broccoli and stuff. Broccoli. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right. A bit of extra protein, I'm sure. We've oh, had. yes, yes. Okay, if you'd uh, like to join us, we are running through until 9.15, so there is time for you to jump on the phones and give us a call. That number is 94190155. That's 94190155. Roger, let's uh, let's have a chat about some of these kangaroo paws that you brought in because oh. they're amazing. The various colours are just wonderful. Yeah, look, I've just brought in a range of colours and all of these are Anigazanthus flavidus selections, yep. cultivars. So... So, so all that, the ones that we recommend as being much yeah, more long-lived. They, they're longer-lived. And uh, and as we mentioned before, Angus Stewart has been breeding and he's doing been doing a lot of selection work on trying to find kangaroo paws that don't suffer from a thing called ink disease. And Anigazanthus flavidus is, tends to be pretty good. 
most, some some cases you might get this ink disease. There's nothing much you can do about ink disease. You know, people think they'll spray with fungicides. And this is one of the things that came out of this symposium last week. We had Brett Summerall, who's a, uh, a plant pathologist from the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney, and he's saying it's a waste of time spraying fungicides on okay. ink disease. It's uh, one of the fungus called uh, Alternaria, and often the fungicides end up causing more, more problem than, uh, you know, trying to combat the... They'll, they'll end up doing more damage. Right. So, but also the thing is with rust. Now, I don't know, people might be growing kangaroo paws and they find that uh, there's these little raised lumps, brownish lumps on the leaves, which can show a bit of yellow now and again. Um, and, and rust is a problem with a lot of the, the smaller kangaroo paws. And uh, Anigosanthus flavidus tends to not have rust at all. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason for, for growing. So, yeah, look, there's a whole range of colours. Gwen's just picking them out of the bucket. There's yellows, <laughs> oranges, <laughs> reds. They're all tangled around <laughs> each other. A tangle of kangaroo paws coming out of this amazing uh, bucket. Fantastic. <laughs> and, and one of the most popular ones down at the, the Royal Botanic Gardens, Cranbourne, is the lime. Um, yeah. It's, you know, it's a yellowy green, I suppose you'd call it, Jeremy. Um, yeah, uh, and it's uh, one of the, pretty good. Yeah, and it's one of those plants which, on a dull day, just it's jumps. It's lighting up even in and here in the bunch. Y- yeah, it stands out. And well, um, lime is a really good colour in the landscape. We painted mm. our front fence lime for that reason. Yeah, on okay. misty, murky days, it, yeah. it shouts. That's right. And so, uh, and and just combining it with some of the other colours, even some of the, the newer ones, landscape violet, which the flowers are a bit finished there, and, and landscape lilac. This is landscape lilac, and the. Just planting them together, you know, you get this lovely combination. So mm. there's lots of things you can do with kangaroo paws. We've only got a very small garden and our front garden is not completely kangaroo paws, but there's a, a lot of them. And I, I'm one of those people who likes to mix colours. Some people don't like mixing colours. They're scared. Of, I think people are scared of colour, actually, sometimes. Um, but it's amazing, you know, what vibrance you can get from some of these plants. Oh, so, yes. Yeah, it's, a, it's a really interesting colour. So I'd describe it as fabulous. a creamy lime with a hint of uh, kind of a mauve grey. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is, is, is that avocado? Sounds, avocado, yes, yeah. <laughs> avocado, that's right, yeah. <laughs> creamy lime and avocado. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> and, Roger, there's another plant you brought in that I know you've been raving about. Oh, yeah, be, before we get on to yeah. that, um, what is the the official name of okay. that one? Landscape lime. So these the series that Angus has been working on are called the oh, landscape, landscape Anigosanthus yes. landscape series, and uh, landscape lime. And so there's landscape. Well, one of the one's there is not one of his it's called big red but uh, that that was bred probably 40 years ago okay and still going fine yes um so there's there's landscape violet which is the new one the new one yeah there's landscape red landscape yellow which is actually a combination of yellow with red okay on it there's lime landscape pink landscape lilac and there's one called landscape um bicolor which is a red and a green all right. So um, there, there's a mix there. 
Most of them will get up to two metres high. The uh, the bicolour one is a bit shorter. Mm-hmm. But, um, no, look, it's well worth, you know, once again, some of these things have been around in different forms over many years, but Angus has brought them all together. I can remember when we used to sell at Croydon Market, you know, back in the, the 60s, early 60s, we used to have, you know, a whole range of kangaroo paws which we used to grow for this time of year and take them to the market and hopefully sell them so but no that that's a good good range good reliable range now you got the public to vote on their favorite kangaroo paw what what was the result we had two the 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 king i think was tenacity no that was number two roger yeah that was the queen (laughs) the queen of the kangaroo paws was tenacity the king was one called king's park federation flame and that's a bright or it's an Anigosanthus rufus selection, which Kings Park in Western Australia did quite a few years ago uh, for the centenary of Kings Park, I think. Um, but it, it's a, a real brilliant one. Um, it's a little bit difficult in gardens, but right. uh, it gets lots of sunshine and, you know, plant them against a brick wall or something like that and you get the ra- radiated heat right. um, over a long period. They, they do well in that sort of situation, yeah. Okay, yeah. excellent. Um, we might go to our next caller. We have uh, Terry, who's in Chelsea. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. How are you? Well, thank you. That's good. Um, I have a question about native um, hibiscus. Yeah, go ahead. Can I cut that back and yes. will that not be quite so rangy and sort of yes. become more compact? Yes, you can do that. Do you know which one it is? Is it? Uh, it's a purpley one. Oh, the purple, the so-called blue hibiscus. Maybe. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, yeah, no, look, you can prune that back uh, quite, quite hard. And, oh, okay. Uh, it'll be fine. And Terry, I think you're asking a dangerous person here. Oh, um, no, that's okay. <laughs> the I other day, mind. Roger pruned ours at the back fence and he took off branches that were two-thirds of a metre long, cut off lots of flowers, yes. but there's lots more flowers coming and you can put the flowers in a vase if you want to. Oh, okay, but, they will last. Will you they? know, two things, pruning, picking flowers is, of course, for everyone, a good way that. to prune plants. I do that. <laughs> good on you, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you can certainly prune it. Just and keep so in mind what shape... how hard I do it. Hmm? No. It won't matter how hard no, I do no. it. No, no. Go go back. As long as you've got some leaves below where you're cutting is oh, the best okay. thing. Oh, okay. That'd be quite okay. Okay. But uh, no, it it it, uh, yeah, it responds well to that. Oh, that's good. Yep. Now, another question. We're having problems with our lettuce plants, and through the winter we had it with spinach and lettuce again. Now we've put another lot of lettuce in, but they've all been eaten down again. Um. The spinach eventually, it did come back again, but whatever it was was also getting into our bok choy. Um, Do you think it would be, I don't seem to, there doesn't seem to be any hole that it would be a rat, I wouldn't think. Right. Um, Do you think it could be possum? Oh, look, it could. I mean, the most likely thing normally with lettuces is snails and slugs. No, it's not snails or slugs because I put... Snail bag down in a pipe, yeah, um, and it's definitely not them. Okay, and it chews it right down, not like um, okay. a snail would do. Yep, yep. Look, it it could well be possums. Yeah. Um, have you got? Have, have, is there a way that the possums can access where you've got them growing? Well, I guess they could jump down off the fence or something. Uh, yeah, and they are getting into oh, lemons, into everything along the. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, 
you know, lovely, lovely fresh lettuce would make a great meal for a possum, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, so I'd say, yes, it sounds like you might have a possum attack, unfortunately. So what, do I, what would you suggest I do? Could I cover it or something? Well, definitely. Yeah, I mean, barrier is the best way of, of foiling possums. If you could find some sort of a, a, a you know, a, a permanent barrier. Yeah, oh, I don't really want to do that. Well, can you net them? Yeah, maybe if I just put, what, just like the bird net? or yep. um, Yes. Hmm. Yeah? Yep. Okay, I might try that. And then get them a bit more established, I guess, and hopefully they don't get into them. Yeah, but if, you, if you've got them netted, you'll, you should be fine. All right, there I'll There shouldn't try be a problem that. then. Yeah. Okay? All right, thank you so much. All Enjoy right. Enjoy your show. Thank you. Thank bye. you, bye. And uh, next up we have Lindsay out in Nunawadding. Good morning, Lindsay. Oh, hello. Yes, I'm just um, giving sort of a, a rep- uh, update on my uh, Wompy, Greg's Wompy. I spoke to uh, Roger about it um, last year sometime, I think. Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, uh, it's um, still growing. Okay. Good. Yeah. Uh, I did have... I, I had to replace it because it, it suffered from... Um, drought i think it just so i've got another one now and it's survived through the winter which is really positive because it's from you know uh central coastal queensland Mm -hmm. yeah um and uh what can i say (laughs) yeah oh the other thing was um avocado i think it was michael who rang up about avocado yes well one of the things i noticed this year in particular was um i've got two um, a bacon and a Pinkerton. Right. Um, and was the hoverflies really um, were very effective at pollinating okay. the avocado. There was masses of hoverflies in mine. So. Yeah. Oh, right. I, I think it was probably the main pollinator rather than bees. Yes, yes. Um, so just something to bear in mind, I suppose. Yeah. Yep. Okay, excellent. Thanks for that. Bye. Okay, bye. And uh, we've got our good friend Ken out in sunshine. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, everybody. Hi, Ken. Beautiful day, isn't it? It's a beautiful day when you can wake up. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I've tried and tried to grow kangaroo paw. Yep. For forty-two years. Oh, Ken. And I have failed. Okay. okay. And a friend of mine planted a four or five last year, mm-hmm. who lives about a kilometre from. Our pl- from our place, mm-hmm. and I feel like uh, they're doing all very well. <laughs> and I said, well, if you find them gone, they're down in okay. Yeah, it probably depends which one he, which ones he's growing, and compared with the ones that you were trying to grow. Do you do you know which ones you were trying to grow? Or I well, not a, don't tell us the whole forty-two years, but uh, I wouldn't have a clue. No, okay. Well, look, to have a go, try and get some of the. Anigazanthus flavidus uh, selections. Okay. I'll write that down. Yeah, they're the tall ones, and they can come in a whole range of colours. And uh, I know one of the things that came out of this conference we just had was that um, don't put organic mulch around them. This came out very strong from quite a few of the presenters, and uh, because. The finding if if there is a bit of this so-called ink disease um, that gets on them, 
just rain splashing or even watering, the spores go hurtling down into the ground. They're fairly long-lived spores, and if there's organic matter there, that's just what they love. And then if you water again, you splash up. And so, so the quite a, quite a few of the people saying to to use something like coarse gravels you know, even crushed rock and things like that, rather than having organic matter around close to them. Oh, well, I think I've been doing some, <laughs> some uh, horrible things over those 40 years. <laughs> 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 I'm not going to tell you what I've been doing, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. Um, that gives me hope. Yeah, no, yeah. Look, the, 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 the flavidus varieties come from the south coast of That's Western right, Australia, yeah. Yeah. and it's the only part of Western Australia that comes remotely close to a Victorian climate. Mm. Uh, we, I was farming north of Perth, and we, we had kangaroo paws everywhere, about five or six different species, one or two incredibly rare ones. Mm. Uh, but the, the climate was just so different, and oh, the soils yeah. so well impoverished uh, by Victorian standards and very free draining and very hot and dry in the summer uh, the, the climate was closer to Mildura yep. than anywhere around Melbourne mm. Mm. and so just automatically it yep. makes it very difficult to grow those plants yeah, some so of the, the flavidus varieties are the ones yeah, to look for yeah. Some of the smaller ones are really ideal as container plants, and that's what a lot of them have been bred for, especially for overseas, uh, for growing, living for 12, 15 months. Yes. Uh, sorry, yeah, weeks, sorry, weeks. not months. Yeah. Uh, 12 or 15 weeks, and uh, naturally they are short-lived, a lot of them. So that, that's the other thing that uh, uh, is to be aware of, that if you want some of these little small ones, Joey paws and other things uh, grow them as container plants, and they'll do well. You know, they'll do well for six months and, and flower for a long time. I must say, I like the idea of the, the big ones. So they're much better as landscape plants. Oh, yeah. oh they work. And really I, well, I just yes. imagine using those with some uh, grasses, uh, kangaroo grass. Well, and, that's uh, right. Well, one of the speakers, Loretta Childs, you know, this is what she does. She has mm, big drifts of them, and and, yep. and with grasses, and, and they look stunning in the landscape. Yeah, they yeah, really yeah. do. Yeah. 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 Yep. Anyway, have a go, Ken. Well, thank thank you very much. I'll give you a report back in about a year's time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you do that, Ken. That'll be your 43rd year. And thank you very much. Yeah, I still keep on gardening. I think I'll keep on gardening until I drop. Good. I think we all will. <laughs> yeah. But it gets a bit hard, though. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. But and I've you've got, got to neighbors, get out there. I've got neighbours still panicking about my tree that's 42 years old, but that's must be three stories high oh. and it's absolutely beautiful and it hasn't even moved or anything little branches have gone down but who cares it's a beautiful tree we anyway, need trees in the environment ken don't you dare chop oh, it down no, no 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 i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't and they all think i'm stupid because i said that um they said if it falls down it could uh, it could kill you and i said well i wouldn't have to worry about chopping it down then would i <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, okay. Okay, bye. Right, next up we have uh, Jim out in Brighton. Good morning, Jim. Uh, Good morning. Thanks for your program. I enjoy it a lot. Oh, good. We have a smoke bush. It's about three years old, and it's not hasn't been flowering. I just uh, wonder if you could explain why. Depending on which smoke bush. Yeah, so we, are we talking the European smoke bush, the cosinus, or the well, the, well uh, there's quite a few different smoke bushes. Oh, right. I think it's a cottonus. It's a cottonus. Yeah. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'd expect that they would take uh, three to four years to begin flowering anyway. All right. 
Yeah, so I'd, I'd just be a little bit more patient. Do you know which variety it was? No, no, I don't. Um, well, we trimmed it back last year by about a third because it was growing over the front fence, and I just wonder if it's grown back. But uh, it just hasn't grown back with the flowers, that's all. Uh, yeah, and we trim ours, and that, that, that uh, just about wipes out the flowering as well. But yes. we grow ours for the foliage. <laughs> yes. No, you, um, I, I, give, I give it a, a good year without trimming it back. Yes. Okay. Yep. All right, I'll do that then. Okay. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. Right, uh, we have Bill, who's uh, in Sunbury. Good morning, Bill. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, what I was ringing about was I have a, a lot of bulbs that have been planted in the garden and now they're just leaves half sort of dying, laying all over the place. Yep. I know they have to die right down to feed the bulb for next year and I was wondering if I just dug them up in big clumps now and left as much dirt around them as possible, would they still keep dying off or am I better off to leave them in the ground? I just wanted to clean up the garden bed, that was all. Yeah, right. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Jeremy? I mean, normally I wouldn't. I wouldn't be moving them until they died right down. Yeah, um, yeah. We um, wait. Wait for them to. Uh, what well, the nutrients have got to go from the foliage down into the bulb. And, yes. Yeah. So. Um, and because it's still likely to be moisture in those leaves, I, I would imagine that if you stored them, you'd then run the risk of, of maybe um, fungus and. Uh, right, in, right. You know, some sort of diseases getting into the bulbs. So I'd, I'd, I know they look unsightly. That's but, always um, a problem with growing bulbs. It so is. They grow them through grass. That helps. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. You know, if you plant other plants, low plants yes, or whatever, yeah. in the same um, proximity, you won't be sort of offended by the, yeah. the bulb well, foliage as it goes well, into dormancy. We're rather fortunate to have inherited bulb meadows, which are, were commercial bulb, uh, a commercial, it was a commercial farm growing flowers for the cut flower trade uh, 60 years ago. Yep. And over the, uh, well, all that time, the, the, the bulbs have naturalised, but the rough grass has infiltrated all, all right through these areas. So. Mm. Uh, the beauty of that is the bulbs uh, flower and then the foliage vanishes in amongst the grass. So mm. if somehow if you can duplicate that effect. But pop in and have a walk around Cloud Hill next spring and uh, have a look at these meadows and then that might uh, suggest how you could treat your own bulbs. But if, 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 if it's in a flower bed, Bill, yep. um, and you don't want to obviously have grasses coming up through the flower bed, um, think, about, think about another plant that you could... Uh, intersperse yes. in amongst the bulbs so yep. that 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 has got an open yeah. habit so the bulbs when they when they come up can come up through it, through it. but when yeah. they're dying down you can sort of tuck the foliage back in under these it's, other plants it's yes. called succession gardening, yes. gardening actually yes right. um yes but uh, that, that that's that's probably the most aesthetic way of dealing with it no look that's fantastic and I can now say to my wife, the people at 3CR, she said, I don't have to dig all that up yet. No, yeah. well, you don't. She's <laughs> in the back room listening, so I hope she heard that. Okay. And she'll say, those dreadful people at 3CR. <laughs> That's right. Thank you very much for that. Okay, okay, then. Bye. Bye. Right, we are, oh, we've, we've only got a minute or so to, uh, Jeremy, you must mention the... Um, Yes, what's coming up in the gardens again? Yes, Firstly, yes. Macbeth. Yes, if you don't mind. I, I actually 
did this poster myself, and I, I think it's nice and gory with a couple Who of. Who posed uh, for <laughs> you? Where did you get them? Well, they're, they're the actors. Oh, uh, they are the actors uh, with their swords swinging around. And okay. the, if you're wondering what the background it is, it's Lindisfarne Island uh, with a castle. It's, so it's not oh, actually right. Scottish, but it's almost Scottish. It's yes. off the east coast of the England, but uh, just south of the the Scottish border. And a, okay. An amazing place in this uh, very dramatic castle with this sky. But we have Macbeth um, put on by Ozak on the last weekend of this month, so the 30th and 31st. It's a Friday and Saturday. And um, so it's a twilight performance. Uh, people bring along picnics and uh, enjoy walking around the gardens, uh, generally arrive around about half past four, half past five, and, 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 uh, make, uh, and spend two or three hours um, have a picnic and then settle back and enjoy the show from about half past six through to nine o'clock. Or, okay. And, um, and ex- oh, well, excellent just, if you've got high school students studying Macbeth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're fairly, I mean, the actors do a really, really good show and they put on shows all around Victoria. So if you miss us, us act at Cloud Hill, well, they, they put on shows at the Ballarat. Botanic Gardens, Geelong Botanic Gardens, uh, um, Bendigo, various places scattered right around Victoria. Mm, mm. So bookings yep, through Cloud uh, Hill? Yeah, through Cloud Hill. Just check our website and, and, and events, the events page and, and uh, go to Try Booking. Or can you phone? Um, well, all three try booking. Oh, okay. Yeah, so just uh, Google Cloud Hill and, and, uh, and uh, click through to the events page. Okay, excellent. Wow, a chance to see some witches round a cauldron on New Year's yeah. Eve. Oh, yeah, it should be fun. <laughs> Exciting stuff. Yeah, yeah. Nice intro to the uh, New Year's Eve for celebrations. <laughs> Absolutely. But while, you, while you're uh, talking about the events, Jeremy, you might as well mention those music events as well. Yep, well, later on in the season, uh, by the end of this week, I'm hoping to have uh, on our website uh, uh, two concerts, one at the end of January, one at the end of February, um, uh, uh, and music from Scotland, um, popular music, but, uh, but put on by uh, very serious musicians. And so it, it should be uh, uh, something which the connoisseur of Baroque music can <laughs> thoroughly enjoy. Absolutely. Uh, and... Uh, and so it's something uh, – check the website and as, it, uh, as the information is posted. Excellent, excellent. Um, I should also um, just uh, repeat that earlier in the program today we were talking to Dr Anne Vale. Um, her book is called Influential Australian Garden People, Their Stories. Uh, it's self-published. She said that it is available through uh, shops like, uh, like Readings, um, or you can go to her website and order the book uh, through the website. Now, uh, the website address is Heriscapes, H-E-R-I-S-C-A-P-E-S, heriscapes.com.au. And uh, that uh, recommended retail price is forty nine if anyone there is interested. Roger... Anything special coming up um, for Cranbourne or with friends of Cranbourne or basically you're finishing up for the year oh, now? There's a few things, good things happening next year. Going to be a talk on West Australian wildflowers by John Thompson because the friends have got a tour next year. But he's in uh, February, I forget the date, but that, that'll be on. Then there's a, 
a really interesting workshop on trees other than eucalypts and acacias and that's so we've got Greg Moore, we've got Alistair Watt um, and quite a few other people talking, you know, workshop, that'll be an all-day workshop. So there are things like that happening and there's a special big... Uh, textile exhibition, mm. fabric exhibition being held from the last day of February till... March 5. March 5. But once again, website, www.something.rbg, yeah, Botanic Gardens. Yeah, you can um, get, yeah, get on there. So, no, look, there's quite a few things happening. Yep. And 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 the the uh, fabrics is is an annual event, isn't it? It is, yeah, and it's huge. It's getting bigger and bigger. Lisa Chandler of Chandler's Cottage is a big assistant in doing that. Uh, and I think last year there were five and a half thousand. No, sorry, that wasn't people. Anyway, a huge number come to this textile exhibition. So if you or anybody else is particularly interested in textiles, you can look at the Botanic Gardens website or just simply um, Google Chandler's Cottage and Lisa's website has it all too. Okay, and and so that involves quilt making and... Yeah, yeah. there's lots of things, demonstrations, things for sale, all that sort of thing, and free entry as the gardens always are. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, Just a a reminder too that Friends of Burnley Gardens have got that Christmas plant sale on on Wednesday the 14th of December, 12 noon through till 3 o'clock, location outside the Student Union building. uh, And if you want to go and look at the website to check what plants specifically they have for sale, it it covers um, native, exotic and produce plants, www.fobg.org.au Well, that's all from us again for this week. A big thank you to the panel and also to Vicky, who's been handling all the calls again for us this morning. We will be back again next week at uh, 7.30. So until then, bye for now.